When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Manchester's indie rock and roll station, XS Manchester. The XS Manchester Long Player, an iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. XS Manchester. Welcome to another XS Long Player, where I discuss a classic indie or rock album with one of the people that helped make it happen. This podcast series is born out of a radio show on XS Manchester, where I take classic albums and I play those albums right the way through from start to finish, right up to the hole in the middle, discussing the stories and the songs from those albums with people involved, producers, bassists, singers, songwriters, whatever. There's always far too many brilliant stories during the interviews I do to feature them all in the show, so the whole of those interviews features on this podcast series, where you can hear the likes of Rick McMurray talking about Ash's album, 1977, Gordon Mokes talking about Block Party, Silent Alarm, Simon from Kaiser Chiefs talking about Employment, Blossoms talking about Blossoms, their debut album, and a whole load more besides. But today's album, Under the Microscope of the XS Long Player, is Pigeon Detective's debut album, Wait For Me. A brilliant album recorded in the band's hometown of Leeds and Soundwork Studios and released back in 2007. I say this about a few albums that I've talked about on the XS Long Player, but it is genuinely one of those albums that when you go back to listen to it, you remember exactly how good it was. And we'll be going through the album today with Jimmy Naylor from the band who, although being credited as the band's drummer on the album, contributed more than just the rhythm section, and nowadays works with a range of alternative artists, both independent and signed, and helps them mix and master their own albums. If you want to find out more about that, or if you're an artist looking for some help, jimmynaylor.com, that's Jimmy with an I, is the place to head for that. But enjoy Jimmy talking about the classic Pigeon Detectives album, Wait For Me, because this is a belting conversation about a brilliant album, and also a demonstration of why you should never trust Wikipedia. Enjoy today's Excess Long Player. How you doing, Jimmy? I'm good. Good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad. The question I ask everyone when I start off these conversations is, 2007, does it really feel like it was that long ago that you were recording and releasing this album? Yes, it does. It feels like a... <laughs> A long time ago now. I mean, bearing in mind a lot's a lot's happened since. It, it really does because we we were like, essentially very busy um, at that time. Mm. Obviously, obviously, we're still touring and doing good shows now. But it kind of is a long time ago, and we've done a hell of a lot since. So yeah, I'm feeling old now. This feels like a long, long time ago now. I'll get on to how it feels to look back on that album with the current head you have on your shoulders 
towards the end of today's chat, but I want to start right at the beginning. And I want to know what it was like before you actually recorded this album. So before you went into the studio, when you were kind of finding your sound and writing your first songs, how did you see yourselves fitting into the musical landscape on the time? Because there was a real boom in kind of indie music around the mid to late noughties. And did you see yourselves as the next Kaiser Chiefs or as the Cribs or as the Strokes? Or I think The Guardian at the time described you as the reincarnation of the lovelorn pop teens of the 1960s. So how did you see yourselves at that time? Well, I mean, I wouldn't say we were overthinking about what else is on the radio, what else is doing incredibly well. I think it was just a bit of a coincidence because me and the rest of the band, we, we grew up on bands like The Beatles, An Oasis, you know, then things like The Clash, Led Zeppelin. And then I'd say what did affect us, which kind of puts us in all of that stead of who was doing well, it was the Strokes who did that for us. Right. So, you know, we were all heavily influenced when that first album came out, Is This It? We were all heavily influenced by that. It felt, you know, really fresh. Yes, we'd all been listening to Oasis and been to lots of, of their shows. But when they came about, it was like nothing else that had been around for a very long time. Felt very fresh. And we were all very mutually into the Strokes and then bands like Interpol and, and The Killers as well. So we were drawn that influence for sure. But it's one of them where you're not trying to copy it. You, mm. You're taking them influences and you're running with it. But we would take that and then be influenced by our live shows, what works and what doesn't work when we're playing live. Uh, but yeah, you know, in the enemy on Radio One, they were all talking about that kind of music. So it was good timing for us to be playing that sort of music. But we weren't trying to be anyone in particular, I would say. It's a bit of a cliche to talk about bands and their names, I know. But I think it's relevant to your story. And the bands you kind of name checked there in bands like The Strokes and Interpol are bands that take themselves or present themselves as very seriously. And Obviously, obviously, you took the music seriously, but in terms of yourselves as a band, you always seemed like you're a band that had fun. And the name itself, Pigeon Detectives, it's quite a whimsical, almost cartoonish name. Did that become a barrier in those early days to being taken seriously amongst those bands that you mentioned? It was a positive and negative. The, the name was kind of an accident. So we had no name for our first show which would have been 2004 in Leeds. We needed to give the, the promoter a name. We'd not settled on something, chose that, and then we gained momentum too quickly to, to change it. I've always hated the name, funnily enough. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm used to it now, of course, but mm. I was in that mindset of, I want us to be taken seriously. You know, we ended up doing like shows on Channel 4 with, with that Welsh guy, um, Steve something. And they were trying to do like, you know, little amusing bits where there'd be a detective there and a pigeon. And we, we were, <laughs> you know, silly things. And yeah. we'd, we'd be telling our manager to tell Channel 4, no, we're not doing that. We do want us to be taken seriously. However, some radio DJs would pick up our songs and play them and be intrigued because of the name. And mm. then some would, of course, go, oh, no, that sounds ridiculous. We're not going to play you. I guess I have a theory that all band names sound ridiculous until that band becomes established. 
I mean, if you think back to any, like, so like Led Zeppelin, for example, it's a ridiculous name until the band do become established and become famous. And I guess it's a similar name to a band like the Arctic Monkeys. And along with a couple of the bands I mentioned already and Bromhead's Jacket and Reverend of the Makers and Milburn, at that time, there was a real Yorkshire scene that was emerging. Did that build like a, a camaraderie between yourselves and those bands or was it a rivalry between yourselves and those bands? How did that scene play out? Well, I mean, if we talk about the Leeds team specifically, we weren't trying to be everyone's best friends or kind of compete against everyone as well. It was very much just a case of myself and the band would hang out more so than anything. But in terms of kind of competition within bands, we weren't really thinking of that. We were just wanting to do our own thing. We didn't care too much about what other bands were doing. We just had our drive and our dream of um, playing big shows, releasing albums. And it would be funny when we get compared to likes of Arctic Monkeys and, and what have you, because although you could put us in the same field, mm. I don't think we sound too much like them. It's, it's just when people hear that Yorkshire accent that <laughs> becomes the similarities. But I have no... You know, I'm never surprised when it's, it, you know, when someone says we sound like the struts because that is what we're trying to do. And I'm, mm. I can't, can't be offended by that. Before I get on to the actual recording of the album itself, tell me a little bit about your journey into the band because you replaced Paul Spooner, who was the band's original drummer. He also gets writing credits on the album uh, with I Found Out and Romantic Type. That's false, Jim. Is that not true? Is that a wicked lie? That's a wicked lie. We think Paul keeps putting it on wiki himself so who, who is paul spooner <laughs> he's a friend of the rest of the bands he he, uh, he went to school with with the rest of the guys and i, I know him and he was never <laughs> in the band i think he played drums not with the band but played drums for about three months one time and he mentioned about playing with them but he, he never re even rehearsed with them so we think he's trying to gain some internet fame there He's written himself into the band's history and he's got it. He's got a he's little got bit of fame. It. You Fair need enough. to be on wiki every day to defend, you know, to keep <laughs> it official and true. But what really happened was I remotely knew the other guys, like Matt had a lot of mutual friends of mine. So I'd, I'd known him to say hello to, but the rest of the band were writing in their bedrooms, playing some covers together, messing about, sometimes writing some originals. And I'd been in lots of bands over the years, drumming in, yeah, lots of different types of bands. But I was working part-time with, with Rye, the guitarist, at Staples of all, of all places, Staples in Leeds. Just, you know, casual part-time stuff mm. that you don't want to do. The guys seemed to know of me just from being in the same village and, and being an, a known drummer around Leeds and... Um, they asked me to come to the first rehearsal and they were, I think some of them were a little bit nervous. They were breaking strings and they'd not played with other people before. And it seemed to go really well. It was just one of them things where it, it was fun. The other bands I'd been in, mm. sometimes I'd been doing the, the odd bit of music, which I was really into. But I think this is the first time that it was really mutual on this style of what we're doing. And it wasn't taken too seriously. It was like, we're hungover from going out the night before. Let's get some pizza in, have a couple of beers and then, you know, start writing together. And it, it just, I knew it was the right thing for me straight away. 
I've got to say, I think that's something that really comes across in your music, that the band as an entity were having fun, be it writing songs or be it playing live. It did seem like it was guys having a good time and really digging what they were doing. Did that translate into the studio sessions in terms of the early recording sessions making this album? Did it feel like it was fun rather than necessarily it was a hard task to be doing? Yeah, I think I think so to a point. Yeah, because we're all doing what we wanted to do. We we were on an you know an independent label that we're part of. You know, we have shares in the label. No one was ever coming in saying you need to change this, you need to do that. We were doing what we want. Of course, this was our first album, so there were some precious elements to it. And I know in the early days of the band, I was seen as a bit of a nightmare because I'm a perfectionist and. I know my main task is to be the drummer, but I was also coming up with, you know, a lot of overdubs, musical ideas, asking to try different arrangements. So sometimes there would be a little bit of friction, but I think for the most part, it was us doing exactly what we wanted to do, being on that independent label that had not done anything major before. We were the decision makers. So yeah, it, it was mainly good fun. The album itself, I understand, took quite a long time to make. It wasn't just a case of going in, spending a week in a studio, coming out with a finished LP. It was kind of fitting it in between a load of live dates and touring dates. Was that a challenge in terms of getting into the right headspace and being able to flip between playing live and playing in a studio? Or was it all much of a muchness? Did both require the same energy? No, what really happened was that we'd, we'd written a lot of the album because we've been testing different songs over the couple of years prior seeing what people were dancing to reacting to or you know on the bad end of the spectrum not being bothered about so we've been sculpting songs that people really like and we'd we'd gotten most of the album and then it, it was a case of Yes, we were getting busy and getting some really good support slots in, in 2006, touring with likes of Dirty Pretty Things and, mm. and Kaiser Chiefs in Europe and what have you. But we only had, we only needed to write kind of, say, three or four more songs to make an album. And we just had a gap. We didn't feel pressure. It, it was never like, oh my God, no, we need to write loads of songs. We were already kind of nearly there. Perhaps it's a good thing to mention Take Her Back here because mm. Take Her Back wasn't written until really close to recording the album. As I say, we needed to write three or four more songs and Take Her Back, we, we were in a bunker kind of studio, rehearsal studio in Armley and Leeds and we were messing about basically. You know, we were, we were writing about Ryan and his kind of weird girl uh, friendship <laughs> relationships and... Um, we were just kind of talking about it, starting to write lyrics, and it came together within about 10 minutes. We'd started on the verses, and then Oliver started playing chorus chords and going on what the lyrics were from the verse. I started to kind of sing a, the chorus vocals. The, the lyrics were slightly different, very, very slightly different. I think it says, like, she's got everything he wants, she's got everything he needs. And I think I just said, like, he's got everything she wants, she's got everything he needs. Mm. And then Ollie started to kind of go, ding-a-ding, ding-a-ding. And then I just finished it off with take her back to her place. And then someone from there said, 
oh, let's repeat that. So it says, take about, take about, take about, like into the more relentless way that, that, it's, <laughs> that it sounds, which has done well for us. So, so yeah, that was a last minute thing that was kind of a bit of a joke. And then all of a sudden it's like one of our biggest singles and people are saying, yeah, you need to put that on the album. It sounds like a really collaborative process then, the writing for this album, whether that continued for the rest of Prison Textile, I don't know, but was that the case? Was everyone, I mean, I think when you listen to the album, you can tell that you've got a hand in it, Jimmy, because the drums are really prominent through quite a lot of it, particularly like where the, the way the album starts off with a romantic type and it's got that kind of heavy, punky drum beat into it. So was it everyone chipping in when you were creating this stuff? It, it was, yeah. Mainly what would happen was that, and this continues to this day, really, is that Ollie has got a great instinct for, for melody and we see him as our kind of main songwriter, but it's very collaborative. So he will usually have some chords, maybe a melody for a vocal, and he'll play kind of a bit of a verse or a bit of a chorus with some, some melody for vocal and that might be rough lyrics. Mm-hmm. And then we start to build the song from there. So we'll change melodies, add new lyrics, you know, kind of really start to, to build the song. So Ollie is kind of a fantastic lead guitarist, comes in with kind of a basic idea and then it really grows from there and everybody gets involved. When the album came out, it charted at number three in the charts, went gold soon after that. Were you taken back by that success? Because that was pretty impressive for a record that wasn't on a major label, that was on an indie. I think it was pretty impressive for an album that I guess is kind of a punk album as well. So were you taken back that it did so well originally? Um, I am now, but I don't think at the time I was. That's typical band swagger, isn't it? (laughs) Typical arrogance. Yeah, Yeah, I'd say it's slight arrogance and, and it's that kind of non-stoppable confidence and belief that you have in your early 20s but we were building to to all of that you know we were very busy you know we'd be doing different radio shows playing different gigs we Mm. built up from playing to 200 people to doing support sorts of a thousand and then playing our own shows of a few thousand and it was it was in a fairly short space of time all of that from his first gig 2004 first single 06 first album 07 but it was all kind of we were all very busy every day we knew it was going quite well so we were we were probably pleased but we weren't completely shocked and it's when you look back and you're like oh yeah we've done glass somebody the other stage oh yeah we were heavily you know realisted on radio mm. one and sold this amount of records it's it, it really is when you look back you're more surprised than you are at the time. Because of the album's success, I guess, to a certain extent, and because of everything else you were doing, playing these festivals and appearing on radio stations, I think this album is one that's really connected with people of a certain age group, and it's become a bit of a soundtrack for those who were growing up in those late noughties years. I hear tracks on old episodes of The Inbetweeners, for example, all the time, and it just kind of fits that particular period for me. Because of that, do you get fans who come up to you now and still have that special connection with your music, particularly tracks from this album? album oh definitely you know we get people coming up saying you know you were our wedding song or i got into my relationship because we were sending each other these songs and you know both loved these songs Mm. or met one of our shows and yeah i i totally understand that it's just like me 
kind of, you know, putting strokes, is, is this it on, thinking about what are we doing at that time, or listen, I mean, I don't really listen to Oasis now, but if I put on Oasis track, it'd make me think of leaving high school and going to all these gigs, and I can totally understand why it kind of makes you go back in a time capsule and like relate to that that area and it's it's always nice to it's it's a double-edged sword isn't it it's like if someone doesn't know that you're really up to much now because they're not hearing it radio you're like oh i remember you guys but it's like yeah we are still still doing stuff but then it's also very nice at the same time does that put a different spin on how you feel about those songs if someone talks about a particular record that's special for a significant story does that change your relationship with that record in any way yeah a kind of i guess you start to realize that these are not totally your songs and i know it sounds sounds kind of pretentious or something but you you kind of you think oh yeah you don't completely own that mm. song it, it means something else to other people and they almost appreciate it more than you do but it's it's nice. We've gone through kind of them stages of that everyone, every artist does, where you kind of get sick of the singles off the first album because you've played them a million yeah. times and heard them a million times. And then, you know, you have a break for a few months, go play a show and play them songs again, and everyone's going mad, and you're like, oh, no, actually, yeah, that is good. But to kind of go against that, if we play songs off our recent album at shows, it's, it's weird because we're getting kind of 16, 17 year old girls singing the lyrics to the new songs. So we have, we do have that appreciation, obviously, for the big singles that we've had in the past, but we do still get kind of a range of ages listening to our new stuff handled. So it's really refreshing at the shows still. I'm going to ask you to pick a couple of tracks off the album in a second, ones that have standout memories attached to them and they could be good or bad or musically or emotionally, whatever it is. So I'm going to ask you to pick a couple in a second, but I just want to talk about I Found Out, if that's okay, which is the second track on the album, which Stephen Street gets a production credit on. Stephen Street's a name that pops up on so many of the albums we feature in the long player. Things like St. Jude already we've done. His name comes up over and over again. And I, he's one of those iconic indie producers but he's not the producer for the whole of the album. You've got Kenzo Townsend and Stephen Harris on a lot of the album. So what did Stephen Street bring to this tune that maybe the other producers working on this album didn't? Well, actually, with Stephen Street, we'd already recorded a version of I Found Out. This is from my memory. We'd recorded a version that was the first time we released it came out, and I think Will Jackson recorded it. And then... When we wanted to re-release, I found out, you know, to kind of stay on the radio and what mm. have you, Stephen Street and Chenzo then got involved and we re-recorded okay. it and it's slightly, slightly different. But actually from there, uh, Stephen Street did actually work on our second album and so we got a relationship from there and it, and it brought a lot to, to that second record. But Wait For Me was produced by Will Jackson. Um, Stephen Harris mixed all the album but the singles so he's worked with U2, uh, U2 Kaiser Chiefs, Cooler Shaker, mm. Santana and when we were doing mixes for Wait For Me in the studio they weren't quite getting there um, and the mixes were done by Will so we started to outsource the mixes to Stephen Harris and, and Chenzo and Chenzo brings something kind of ridiculous to the uh, page. The mixes he, he does sound amazingly exciting and nearly every band he mixes get on the radio so he really brought a lot to the band 
pick a couple of tracks off this album then that you'd like to highlight and it could be because when you listen to them they spark off a memory from when you were recording it it could be just a moment of musicality that makes the hairs in the back of your neck stand up what would you go for if you're looking at the album trying to be objective i think i'd definitely go with take her back you know the amusement of taking them the mickey out of ryan and his relationships and just the the feeling it gives me when i think about all the festivals we played we usually play it late, late on in the set and people go mad for it and it just makes me think of the carnage we get at festivals when we play it i appreciate that song and, and what it you know does for people and uh yeah, it, it does mean a lot to the band. If you were going to pick another one? I'm not sorry. Basically, it reminds me of all the the small gigs that we started off doing in Leeds and we would end with I'm not sorry and everyone would get up dancing. We still like that song. It's got a really nice dancey feel and, you know, we close the set with it to this day, you know, mm. however many years later. And funnily enough, I think it was a, our highest charting single as well. Awesome stuff. So a few years back, Jimmy, you did the anniversary tour for this album. You played the whole thing through live. What was it like going back and revisiting these tunes again? Not just relearning and replaying them, but kind of almost rediscovering them a bit. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, it, it was a weird one because we were like, oh, no, the album's only 34 minutes long or 35 minutes long. How are we, you know, we're charging people for these shows. What are we <laughs> going to do on top of that? So the more nostalgic moments were actually learning the, the B-sides, which we'd not played since about 2007. So that was the weird one because we always play some songs from Wait For Me. So the weird thing was, was learning all the B-sides and making a full set where mm. we were able to warrant charging ticket fee for it, it was amazing, you know, the, the amount of people that, that came to them shows. You could see how much it meant to people. Yeah, it was a fantastic tour. How did it feel revisiting some of the subject matter? Because obviously you've grown and developed and aged as individuals. And I always think music's a little bit like a diary entry, particularly when you're writing about stuff that's going on in you or your friends' lives. Did it feel strange to kind of put yourself back in that position as the age you were when you were creating the album? Definitely. I mean, we could talk about kind of... A track like You Know I Love You, it would be seen as a little bit too much in this day and age. You know, it's talking about, you know, females in a, in a sexual way. And, and it's kind of the stuff that we wouldn't say now, let alone write about. So it was one of them where actually we were preparing for the tour. We'd not played You Know I Love You in a very long time. And we were thinking you know, can we play this? Because it's almost deemed misogynistic. But in reality, you know, we were young 20, 21-year-olds just having fun, going out into town and talking about other girls. It, you know, we weren't extremely misogynistic people. Mm. But obviously, you go back just, just as like old television shows might be deemed too much back in the 80s or even 90s when we were approaching some of them songs, we were like, this is a little bit cringe. This is too much. Is this a little bit misogynistic? And as I say, we weren't really over misogynistic back then, but we definitely wouldn't say those things or, or write them about, about them as mid 30 year olds and, and going on kind of where society's gone. So it was a, a sensitive one to be fair. And I, I think on the odd gig, Matt just twisted the lyrics on that one for sure. It's interesting you mentioned that because when I was listening back to the album, I think it was a line in I Can't Control Myself about mm -hmm. 
walking into a door, I think the phrasing was, which I thought in 2007, that feels like a very different sentence to putting it in 2021. So when you look back on this album, how does it feel like it's aged? How does it, do you think it stands up in terms of, and not, I'm not just talking about subject matter, I'm talking lyrically, I'm talking about musically as well. Do you think it still stands up to where music is and where music has been? I, th- I think so. I, th- I think the main thing for me, and this this goes on when I listen to stuff, if it feels classic in, you know, in the way the way the chords come across and the melody, you, you know, you put on a, you know, a Michael Jackson record, a, a Clash record, you know, some of their biggest albums, there's just a, a feeling to it where you're not overly thinking about lyrics and it's it's the chords and melody which I think mainly mm. people relate to, and they're yeah. not overanalyzing the lyrics. And I think it does stand up against it for the most part. Yeah, it doesn't sound really modern. We were going for a bit of rough and ready lo-fi sound anyway, so I, th- I think it's held its voice. I wouldn't go and record something like that tomorrow either. So, yeah, I think so, is my answer. I don't, I don't know what your opinion is. I think it's great. About it. I think that's part of a classic album is the fact that it captures a particular time or a particular place or a particular feeling. And, and so it's only natural that maybe the subject matter is going to feel potentially dated as it moves Aged, on. But as yeah. you say, musically, 100% stands up. I'm interested to know, because I mean, you're still doing stuff as a band 14 years on from the release of this album. And whilst a whole load of your contemporaries of that period have kind of fallen by the wayside, what has kept Pigeon Detectives going over all this time? I I think it would be our close relationship in the band, the fact that everyone's grown up together. Second to that, I'd say it's our, our live shows. I think, you know, don't want to kind of big myself up too much but <laughs> people seem to really react to to our band playing live and they think we ultimately are quite a bit better than we are on record and people seem to have fun uh, when they come see us live so i think that's you know a big thing that's that's kept people coming back and, and putting on our records again and have we got a new record? 2017 was your last album, wasn't it? So it's a while ago since you've released anything new. Is there a new one in the pipeline that we, you can talk about? That I can talk about. <laughs> we'll, we'll have to see. Okay. Yeah, we'll have to see. It would be good. I actually thought it might have been nice to release even an EP you know, last year when everyone in lockdown. Mm. That, that didn't happen. But... You know, there's a potential there, but for now we're very happy just to get back and, you know, get back in front of people when they've not been to shows in such a long time. We can't wait to play. Well, fingers crossed, live music returns soon. Jimmy, it's been a pleasure talking to you about what is undoubtedly a classic album in wait for me. And I've got to say, as I listened back to it for the first time in a while, listening to it all the way through, actually reminded me quite a lot of the Buzzcocks in terms of that slightly punk with melody, I guess you'd call it. And for me, that's a huge compliment. So I hope you take that the right way. But it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Good luck keeping the Wikipedia page updated yeah uh, i'm gonna jump onto it now (laughs) (laughs) thanks for your time on the excess long player no worries jim thanks very much the excess manchester long player an iconic album in fall with jim salverson excess manchester hope you enjoyed jimmy naylor from pigeon detectives talking about wait for me if you did make sure you 
leave a review and leave a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you listen to podcasts. I'd love to hear what you think of it and it really helps other people discover this show and the other shows in this series as well, which if you've not listened to yet, please do go back and listen because there's some brilliant insight and stories from some of the most influential albums of the indie rock scene. That's it for this episode. I'll see you next time. Manchester's indie rock and roll station. Access Manchester.